House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Welcome to a brand new episode of Capital Ideas. It's the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down in front of a microphone at the Capitol and talk about ideas. What you can count on is that they'll be good ideas, ideas about making Washington a better place to live, work, and raise a family. Today's idea generator is Representative Tina Orwall. Tina lives in Des Moines, and she's been an effective voice for her friends and neighbors in the 33rd Legislative District since 2009, which, coincidentally, is how long Capital Ideas has been a podcast. For several of those years now, Representative Orwall has been Speaker Pro Tem Orwall. In that role, Tina presides over most floor sessions of the Washington State House of Representatives. We'll talk about both of her legislative roles in today's Capital Ideas. We recorded this on Friday, January 19th, 2024, and here goes. Welcome back to Capital Ideas, Speaker Pro Tem Tina Orwall, Representative Tina Orwall of the 33rd Legislative District. It's been about 22 months since the last time you and I talked on Capital Ideas. That was at the height of the pandemic. I'm glad that we have better conditions today. Oh, absolutely. It's so nice to connect in person and really, you know, be able to see each other and talk to each other. We have a lot to talk about because you're a very busy person. I mentioned that you're the Speaker Pro Tem of the State House of Representatives. That's pretty much a full-time job, it would seem to me. You're also an individually elected legislator representing 150, 160,000 people up in the 33rd Legislative District. That seems like a lot. And yet you also seem like one of the most energetic people down here. As far as the bills you've sponsored over the years that have become law, uh, you know, there are lawmakers who, and this is not to insult them because they have other contributions, but who may be here for years without passing two or three bills into law. On the other hand, your fingerprints are all over the revised code of Washington. <laughs> Usually it's to help somebody who's been victimized in some way or another yes. or somebody who needs help. Veterans, mm -hmm. victims of sexual assault, victims of trafficking. Why do you do that? Well, thank you for that question. And the first thing I would tell you is that every bill I introduce has a story. As a story of someone who was harmed, someone that maybe the system failed, and who really felt that their voice has not been heard or reflected in what we do in our state. And so, you know, it's, it's such an honor to be able to work so closely with the community and really make sure their voice comes to Olympia. You know, so often, you know, I'm approached by someone in the community, and not only do I want them to share their story, but they often know what's broken and how to fix it. And so... That really is something I'm really passionate and proud of, is to make sure that when I introduce a bill, um, that really it's the stories that are shared that really make the difference and really make the bill move through the process. So I'm assuming you do what a lot of lawmakers talk to me about, which is you work with citizens to develop pieces of legislation. You don't just sit in your office and write a bill and then try to get people to support it. These are 
These are from the ground up in a lot of cases. Absolutely. And we're usually working on it year round. I mean, a lot of this is like, you know, if it's the supporting survivors or it's suicide prevention, they're complex issues that often take multiple bills over multiple years. And so we often build a group of people that are passionate about this and, ha- you know, work on these bills over time. You know, I have a trafficking bill and I worked with Jerry Mumo, who's a survivor. And I think we decided we've worked on like six bills together and she shared her story, right? She was taken from her tribe and trafficked uh, in our state in Washington. So, so that's what gives me my marching orders and my passion to really do this work. I'm going to want to talk to you at a little more depth about a few of the bills that you're sponsoring right now, but I want to go back a couple of years and find out what's going on now with a situation that you have worked on for years to improve, and that is the, the quick and efficient testing of sexual assault kits. You've sponsored way more than one bill about this. Um, more than one has become law. I know that things are improving but what is the status right now of the sexual assault kit testing regimen? Well, thank you for asking. I think we started that work in 2015 uh, when we discovered in evidence rooms these boxes stacked literally to the ceiling. And they were all sexual assault kits, survivors who had no path for justice, who voices were never heard. And we realized after really going through an inventory, it was over 10,000. And, you know, I did team up with uh, Representative Mossbrucker. You know, this is a nonpartisan issue with Attorney General and, and many amazing legislators. And we've made progress. As of the end of last year, all the sexual assault kits have been tested. We also have a process in place where every kit is tested within 45 days. So we will never have a backlog as well as this tracking system where a survivor can go online and check the status of what is actually going on. We have trauma-informed training for law enforcement and now prosecutors because we want to make sure when a survivor reaches out that we're not doing harm, right? Uh, you start by believing and supporting and helping persons get into to services. So the other thing I would mention, which I think is really important, is you know often sexual assault is about power and control over another person. And there's a very strong serial nature. And I think well over 12 cases have been taken to court and the person charged, one receiving over 30 years because of the serial nature of the harm that they did. So not only is this supporting survivors, but it's really making our community safer. And what you just talked about, that happens when the testing of one sexual assault kit turns up a piece of DNA or a piece of telltale evidence that can then link that person to multiple other sexual assaults by looking at those kits. Absolutely, and it goes into an FBI database when we we test the kits. And the one that jumped out to me right away was a 14-year-old girl that was abducted and sexually assaulted, I think in the early 90s at a torchlight parade in Seattle. And that kit sat for many, many years without being tested. And after they got the results and uploaded it, it connected to a sex offender in Florida. And they were able to bring him back to Washington prosecute him. And I think he did get, um, you know, basically life in prison. And then hearing the survivor say, well, I finally feel safe. Years go by and people carry those scars and a lack of safety. And really, you know, we do so much for that survivor and the community when we we make sure that these uh, perpetrators are held accountable. Before I move on to another issue, tell us what a sexual assault kit is, because I'm, I'm sure that most people, fortunately, 
have never had to know what a sexual assault kit is. Right. Well, you know, it's um, it's a forensic exam that happens by a specially trained nurse. They actually, you know, work with the survivor, usually, you know, within an emergency department. And it can take three to six hours. And it's a very thorough exam. It's looking at all kinds of injuries, doing testing. Often they'll take pictures They'll collect the DNA and other things that will be needed. And it's really important because it's a chain of custody. You know, this, you know, there's a documentary called I Am Evidence. I mean, literally, your exam is the evidence that could, if you decide, go into a court of law to prosecute the person that harmed you. And so it needs to be carefully handled and stored uh, and tracked. And so, you know, that's a lot for a survivor to go through. And you imagine it's the worst trauma of your life. And now you're going through this very extensive exam. So that's why, you know, we need to honor that. We need to expedite that. And they need to know that we're taking this seriously to really try to find justice. Talking about the sexual assault kit and the backlog and the testing, we're talking about the entire universe of sexual offenders as well as survivors of sexual assault. You've got a bill this year that's more specialized, and it deals with sexual assault on college campuses. Well, thank you. You know, I've done a lot of work around survivor rights. And um, last year, I had um, six college students asked to meet with me. They were from different universities around our state, and they'd all been sexually assaulted on campus. Um, it was heartbreaking. And they felt they weren't heard. They felt they had no justice. Um, you know, the, the largest group that's most at risk for sexual assault is people between the ages of 18 and 22, especially women. And it happens to men. It happens to, you know, gender neutral. I mean, it, it happens all the time on our college campuses. And what I realized is not that there's not people who care, but there's no system in place. You know, often people were calling and they were getting an appointment a week later. You know, that didn't give them a path to go to an emergency department. They didn't maybe want to go by themselves. They had no one to support them and talk to them and help them through this really horrific journey. And so the bill really is a student survivor bill of rights of really what we should be doing on campuses. Again, I think we have different components and we have people that care, but we need to make sure there's a confidential advocate who can respond right away and help them through this process. We need to train all of the people that have contact with that survivor, and that might be people employed by the university, that they have trauma-informed training. So again, they can support that person and not do harm, as well as maybe look at can they still participate in school? Do we need to make any changes to their schedule or testing Why they're going through this very difficult time? So again, this bill is really in honor of, of all the survivors on the colleges that are really coming forward to share their stories. Let's move to another topic that is of great concern, particularly to people who have experienced this, and that has to do with fertility fraud, which uh, is a term that may not be very transparent. Tell me what that is and how is it that this has become a piece of legislation sponsored by you? Thank you. And, and you know, I wasn't aware of what fertility fraud was until several years ago. And I do have a constituent that was impacted by this. And 
basically, when someone goes into a fertility clinic, it's situations where the doctor uses their own sperm to impregnate. And obviously, the woman believes it may be, maybe it's their partner, maybe they think it's from a donor, but there's no consent. And as you can imagine, that, that's a great violation. You know, that is a form of assault as well for that to happen. And what we've discovered in our country, especially as you have like 23andMe and Ancestors and all the, all these different programs where you enter your DNA, is people are going onto these programs and they're discovering things like they have 20 siblings. And I have a survivor of this where she went onto one of these, these DNA programs and she discovered that she had all these unknown relatives. And so not only was she shocked and had to deal with her own emotions, she had to go tell her mother, who had no idea this occurred. For me, this is such an incredible violation. When we go into a doctor's office, we assume we're safe, right? And when you think about this maybe being premeditated and what this involves, it is a huge violation and it affects generations to come. Right. Then they have to go back and try to, you know, for her, it was like, who am I? Like it, sh- it shook her whole world. Um, she she got depressed. She really kind of isolated herself. And then she came forward to tell her story. And there's a number of survivors now that are coming forward. This story has a new light because at the University of Washington, there is a fertility doctor who recently resigned who does have another situation that happened 15 years ago in California. And upon hearing this, he did step down from the University of Washington, but now the clinic are being approached by people he did help, and they're giving free genetic testing. And the bill is to say, one, there should be consequences of this behavior. And we had a doctor in Spokane that practiced after this happened. We think that should remove someone's license. We think there should be more oversight of this whole industry and checks and balances Uh, We also have a criminal charge for someone that would do this action. So, you know, we're trying to learn more. We're trying to support the survivors. And the reality is the fertility industry in itself is not carefully regulated or at all at the state level. It's a little bit at the the federal. And I want to make clear that the bills that we're talking about, other than bills from the past, such as the sexual assault kit bills that you have sponsored that have become law, these are bills that are currently being considered by the legislature They may become law, they may not. What's your optimism level about the bills that you have currently moving through the system? Well, we just recently had the hearing for the survivors on college campuses, and there were over 300 people that signed in support. No one signed in opposed to the bill. I feel like uh, we've really come together with the survivors and the Title IX directors on the campuses to create good policy, but there will be a fiscal note. And sometimes in a short session, that's a challenge. And so I try to kind of phase in the bill. But again, you know, I think it's an important bill. I think it's an urgent bill. But again, the fiscal and how that gets balanced out, I I can never know. But again, I hope this will be a priority bill. The fertility fraud bill is sitting in rules. I hope to get it over to the Senate. There's also a senator working on this issue. He's working more on the civil right of action, and we think both bills are really a good package of bills if we can get them both moved this session. For the people out there, when a bill is sitting in rules, the Rules Committee is the final step before a bill either gets killed or okayed to move to the House floor and receive a vote of the full House. 
I'm going to move to a bill that you're sponsoring that kind of combines sex and fraud, and that is what in in legislative speak here is called fabricated intimate images. Uh, some people would refer to this as artificial intelligence porn. This is a new kind of offense. You know, I'm really proud because I think the legislature has done some good work about the use of intimate images. You know, I can tell you in the, the work we've done prior to this year is that often, and it was called revenge porn, but it's when someone uses an intimate image that you did not give consent to be shared publicly, and it's you're recognizable, and it's done for the purpose of harming you. One of the things we realized this year, and I was working at the national level, is that we need to expand those bills to include what we call digitally altered images or fabricated images, which includes artificial intelligence and the use of those AI programs where maybe you're taking someone's face and you're having them do sexual and other really graphic lewd conduct. And the thing I would say that really has struck me is that often you can't distinguish if that's actually the person doing it or if it was generated. So it does the same amount of harm that intimate images being shared, but it's often done where the person has no idea that this existed, right? Because they, they've never seen it. It was generated by someone. We had a story of a local high school where they had taken a prom picture and it had 15 and 16-year-olds and another student had basically, you know, changed the images in a very graphic way. You know, we had a student share their story because once you had something so public and so harmful, you don't want to come forward because in a way that shines a light on it again. And so we had a student who did just a beautiful job testifying for her friends. But these do harm. This can hurt someone emotionally. Uh, it can have an impact on their physical health and their social life. And I think of all those young adults that are so tied to media and just the profound impact that may have on their lives and how difficult it is ever to take down these images. So we want to send a clear message that this is not acceptable and there are consequences when these actions do happen. This could have a serious effect on a person's career prospects later on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good luck. Let's move now to your other role here in the legislature, and that is Speaker Pro Tem. Basically, what that means is that you are the person, along with your Deputy Speaker Pro Tem, Representative Bernoski, who most of the time stands at the front of the House of Representatives with the gavel in her hand and runs floor sessions of the House of Representatives. What's that like? You know, I started doing it a number of years ago, and I just found I love it. And it's so much about honoring the institution, right? It's about having civil discussions on important topics that impact our state. And, you know, there's not a day that I don't walk up those marble steps that I'm not in awe. And when I have the privilege um, for Speaker Jenkins uh, to preside, it's an absolute honor. And I work as a team. So with Dan, our deputy um, speaker pro tem, we just really um, try to share the responsibilities. And of course, we do those on behalf of Speaker Jenkins. I always really look forward to it. It's really great to be back in person. It was it was challenging during COVID, but you can feel the energy in the room. And when people get up and speak, I just, they're speaking from their heart. And it just, it's, I love having that ability to listen to those stories to make sure people are heard and that we really move um, these important bills forward. 
How is it decided who is going to preside on a given day? How is it decided <laughs> whether it will be Speaker of the House Lori Jenkins or whether it will be you or Speaker Pro Tem Dan Bernoski? Well, anytime Speaker Jenkins wants to preside, the gavel is hers. So if she's not wanting to preside, we kind of hand it off. You know, one of the things I've really realized is that when you preside, you need to do it enough that it just comes naturally. And there are so many technical things with the bills and the different kind of bills we do. It's really important to be up there frequently to do it well. So we, we just do handoffs. If I have a conflict or maybe one of us isn't feeling well, we'll just do the coverage. But, you know, especially as we start running bills, we just like, you take list one, I'll take list two. And he does a phenomenal job. And, and you know, it's just, it's great teaming up with him. Do you have something up there that's pretty comfortable to stand on? <laughs> we have this kind of thick, squishy mat. And so it really makes a difference. Like sometimes we're up there, you know, three, four, five hours, and it helps you to stand for long periods of time. I'm always trying to warn people because I don't want anyone to trip on the little ledge, but uh, it makes a huge difference. Right now there are 98 people on the floor generally counting the speaker pro tem or the speaker when the house is in session. For the last few years, it hasn't been that way. And yet the house has gone on. How was it presiding over the house when people were scattered all over the state and really what you had to go with was a computer screen with 97 other people's faces on it. It was very surreal. It was hard being here and having it be so empty, you know, that that's the the energy of the legislatures is all the folks. I would say, though, the IT staff that made that possible and all the staff that worked on that was incredible. I was so proud of our state that they were able to help us pivot that quickly. When I would preside, we had plastic barriers between us. And then often I had to wear a mask, <laughs> which was challenging. But I'd be staring at all the members and they would be on a screen and sometimes kind of tiny, right? It was so good we were able to do it, but it is no substitute for being in, in person. And, you know, we worked late hours into the night. And I will tell you, there was one time I looked down at the screen. We were doing a vote. And of course, sometimes, you know, people, they're not paying attention. They need to vote. And I looked and it was the member's dog was sitting in their seat. (laughs) (laughs) And that was, that was one of the more interesting parts. But, you know, people were great. People, you know, were in their computer, you know, in front of it for hours. And it was incredible. We were able to move forward. But uh, it is, No comparison to being in person. I know you've got to run here. We need to to get you moving. But before you go, I want to talk about a bill from last year and and kind of get an update on that. And that had to do with deaf and hard of hearing devices. And I was really surprised. You know, it's about the instruments people need who are deaf and hard of hearing to be able to engage with the world. When you think about how important that is, you know, for children to learn, for adults to be able to not be isolated. And so when I had a constituent, Jill, approach me, I was really shocked that insurance companies do not have to cover those instruments. And they are not cheap. They can be like $3,000 and more per ear. And so it took us, I think, four years. She had a son, Hugo, who's been testifying. And I think he was like seven when we started this process and he was 10. But he testified and he was able to share his story of what his life was like before and after he did get hearing aids. And, you know, at one point we had a whole panel of just these young adults sharing their stories. And I tell you, there wasn't a dry eye in the room. 
So I'm so proud. That was really my big bill from last year, and it took a team. Uh, and so now large ins- insurance companies starting this month have to cover the cost of the hearing aids, and then our other plans will follow in the next year or so. But um, that we, it's called Hugo's Law in honor of Hugo. Good for Hugo and good for you. I'm going to let you go now, Tina. I hate to do that, but the time is up. Thank you for coming by and being a guest on Capital Ideas. Once again, I think probably we've talked four or five times over the last several years, and every time I look forward to it, and every time I think the people listening out there find it worthwhile. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I promised good ideas, and that's what we just heard. You can hear equally good ideas in every episode by subscribing to Capital Ideas. You can do that in a variety of ways, and if you found us today, you already know what they are. Never forget, this is your state government, and the more familiar you are with what goes on here in Olympia and who your representatives are, the better you'll be able to make government work for you, your family, and everyone else you care about. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for your time and your attention, and please don't be a stranger. 